Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined on the programme by Mark Esho. Mark is the owner of Easy Internet Solutions in Leicester. Trading under the name of freevirtualserver.com, it is now one of the largest free web hosting providers in the whole of the UK. Mark, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Oh, hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, um, it's good to be here. Absolute pleasure having you, Mark. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast series is to gather a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And mm. leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 yeah. situation and several business leaders and, of course, politicians, governments having to lead their firms, their countries through this uh, pandemic. Tell me, for somebody that's working right. in your line of work, um, how has it been for yeah. you in navigating the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's posed a few challenges. Yes, it has. Um, well, I actually, apart from using internet uh, solutions, I also own using internet services. It's a digital marketing company. And I've recently set up a social enterprise called Access Rating. And the challenge has actually been different for each, for, for each company. Well, using internet solutions, it hasn't been too bad because the price point is relatively low. And people and um, customers tend to renew on an annual basis. Uh, Ease Internet Services, which is a digital marketing company, the, the impact has actually been quite profound because the first thing people do is, is they panic. And as a result, we've lost just over a quarter of our turnover within the last six weeks because mm-hmm. of it. Uh, with regards to access rating, social enterprise, um, they basically redevelop an app which allows disabled people to actually submit reviews on them. Um, hotels, bars and restaurants across the UK because hotels, bars and restaurants across the UK have actually all closed down now. Uh, it means that our app is now redundant to a certain extent. So, yeah, so it has been, as I said, it's been, um, it, 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 it's, it's been quite interesting. Mm, certainly seems uh, the case. And um, I can imagine in yeah. your industry as well that um, your staff have yeah. really, really taken well to uh, working from home. Um, has that been um, a challenge or have they really adapted to that during this period? Right, so for us, we've been quite fortunate because we started homeworking about 10 years ago. Uh, we employ disabled people as well, so to certain, well, actually not because we employ disabled people as well, that, that has come out wrong. Uh, because we, we started homeworking about 10 years ago, and one of the reasons we did that is to um, to try to um, encourage or try to engage or employ a wider range of talent across the country. So that includes not just disabled people, but also uh, working mothers as well. So essentially half of the people that work does actually work from home. So transitioning from actually going to basically full-time homeworking has been minimal. That's really, really good to hear that um, it's been quite an easier transition. And we often yeah, hear it said, is, yeah. um, we hear it said, don't we, that it could well be um, a new norm for the way that we work and the way that we do business in future. And is that something that you can see coming out from this? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think the way we interact with each other, also the way we do business, is going is going is going to change um, drastically. And, you know, for internet businesses, you know, the, the, the transition is going to be relatively easy. Uh, but for the more traditional businesses like your pubs, your bakers, your cafes, whereby you kind of need that face-to-face interaction with hairdressers, you know, just so many of them. You know, I think it's going to be, you know, I think it's, it, it, 
it's going to be pretty tough in the next few months. It's going to be a really, really challenging period and a very changing business landscape, absolutely. And it really highlights the importance of innovation and adaptability within businesses. And business absolutely. leaders are going to have to follow suit, aren't they? I mean, adaptability in any context is, um, never mind a time of crisis, is important anyway. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. And that's why with us, you know, we try to keep our business models very flexible. So in case anything happens, you, you, you know, obviously we couldn't foresee this. And we didn't have like any contingencies against it, uh, but because we've kind of had a very flexible approach to our business, uh, that's why it's been a lot easier for us. Uh, businesses that obviously they've been a bit more slower to to change also adapt, and then you know will actually find it very very difficult indeed at the moment. It's important, really, um, especially at this time, to strike that balance mm. between proactivity and reactivity, isn't it, Mark? Because um, it's yeah. you, can, you can have certain contingency plans in place, albeit not a lot of them will have been sufficient for something like this. But also changing guidelines, changing circumstances require very quick decisions to be made, but they have to be made in a measured way. And it's important that leadership takes a role there, too. Yeah, 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 I completely agree. You know, because I was looking at our local uh, butchers and... Um, um, actually, a couple of our local um, restaurants, and it's only not till about two weeks ago that, that they started to offer home deliveries. And, and you know, if the owners have been a bit more proactive and, and adaptable, I think they should have offered home deliveries from day one, and and and, and basically, in basically, set you know, circulated leaflets or information that okay, or there, okay, we actually uh, closed but we can actually still deliver to your door, that sort of thing. So, and, and again, this is where it's not just the small businesses, also larger businesses as well. And that's why sometimes you just got to think, you know, you've got to try to think outside the box and actually think, okay, mm. you know, we're now in a very bad situation or challenging situation. You, you know, what can we do to actually get out of this? And how, you know, also what can, what can we do to actually, to actually support the community? I think that example is a very good example of how this period has been a learning curve for some businesses. And I understand, of course, that you were sort of ahead of the curve in working from home and therefore you've been able to adapt a little bit easier. But is there anything that you have learned as a leader or as a business from this experience? Um, well, well, what, what, what we've um, uh, learned, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, homeworking doesn't suit everyone, uh, but we kind of knew that already, but mm. we didn't know how, how badly it was going to impact on the members of staff, uh, because after a while, you, you know, you start getting cabin fever. Uh, so we, we've seen with a couple of staff, their performance has deteriorated really badly. And they're, you know, they're kind of struggling and we've kind of had to put things in place. They're like, for instance, giving them much more, much more flexibility with regards to their working hours um, uh, in order to support them. Uh, so I think that's what, so that, that to us is, is, is actually been one of the key lessons that we've learned so far. And it's an important aspect of leadership as well, isn't it? That ability to manage that's- people. Absolutely, no, 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 no. It's critical uh, because again, it's all the, you know, you know, leadership. That you know, just as you said, is being able to manage people, um, able to assess their needs, you know, even and also be in a position whereby you anticipating problems even before the problems arise. Exactly right. I mean, that ability to 
plan ahead, be proactive yeah. playing. It's so, so, so important. Yeah, um, it's critical. It, it's absolutely massive. And um, I'm aware, Mark, that, of course, you, you're very experienced. Of course, you launched, you first launched Easy Internet Solutions back in uh, 2004 and have grown the business into um, a leading player in its field. Um, did you yeah. always sort of imagine planning ahead quite early on in your career that you would end up taking on a leadership role and running your own business one day? <laughs> no, not at all. No, I started off um, in finance, uh, but due to my um, disability, which was deteriorating, um, I was then kind of forced into business. <laughs> Um, um, by default, really. So, um, so I set up my first company, Internet uh, Services, which is a digital marketing company in 2000, and um, and Internet Solutions in 2004. Uh, so, yeah, so I kind of got into business almost by default. Um, mm. But uh, as you rightly said, you know, it's all about planning and planning ahead, and and part of it as well is just is, is basically it's actually planning what services or trying to anticipate what services you know, you know your target audience is actually going to want down the line. I think that you're absolutely right there, that the importance of planning ahead and proactivity is so, so vital. Yeah. Um, but when you first yeah. saw, sort of took on your own business venture, Mark, um, as well, um, yeah. did you feel that you were ready-made for leadership or has it been very much a case of just learning on the job for you as well? I think, for me, I think because I've been, I was disabled polio at the age of five. Uh, so I've always had to find ways to survive and um, and to solve problems as you go along, problems and access, problems, all sorts of things, you know, everyday life. Um, so I, for me, because to me, business is about problem solving to a certain extent, because you always hit, you know, you always hit hitting the best scenarios. So I think I was actually quite well suited to it. And the reason being is because I said, you know, I was, you know, I'm a great uh, problem solver. So when I got into business and I didn't have any money, I thought to myself, okay, the bank won't give me any money. So, you know, so I just used my credit card instead. I couldn't go out and pitch for business because I was, I was housebound. I offered my services for free uh, initially and then obviously and then offered it on a no placement, no fee basis. So it's all, it's all about coming up with those creative solutions. I think you're absolutely right there. And um, on that journey, would you say that experience was the biggest teacher or did you have any sort of um, leadership figures that maybe you drew inspiration from that you encountered through your career as well? Uh, leadership, um, for me, um, well, uh, I would say well, that, 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 that's, that's a good question. Well, I look at um, people like um, Lord Sugar and Richard Branson, uh, you know, people who basically started their businesses from scratch. And I kind of take inspiration from them Mm. um, because like myself, you know, they they, they essentially just started from nothing. And, um, you know, with hard work and and with your, you know, with with sheer determination, determination, you know, you can make it work. I think that's really important because whereas you can pick up skills um, and really develop those throughout your career in that sense, something kind of has to come from within, doesn't it? Sort of a determination and a drive and a willingness to succeed. You're absolutely right. Is that determination, that drive, also um, continuous self-development as well. So every year I always make sure that I pick up a new skill. Um, you, you know, so that kind of just gives you that flexibility, and that you know, and, and and to be able to adapt to various situations, and um, so yeah, it's um, so for me, it's all about continuous development and learning. 
And of course, um, building up a business from scratch, um, especially with a disability, is a remarkable achievement, Mark. Um, but if you Thank could you. Um, go back, um, say, sort of 10, 15 years and speak to yourself um, a yeah. um, that amount of time ago, is there anything that you yeah. maybe tell the younger you to do differently? Um, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I'd actually say to my, to my younger self not to worry and stress too much. Mm. <laughs> Because um, when I started off, I was always, you know, I was always stressed. I was always worried, and um, even now, I still get a bit stressed and a bit worried. And uh, but it's but it's worked out, and um, and to have a bit more faith in myself, um, I think that's you know that's what I said. I think faith in yourself and faith in those around you is so important, isn't it? Like not being absolutely. afraid to delegate responsibility right. where required, because I think yeah, so many, right. yeah, you're right. So many leaders these days can um, really bow to the pressure of feeling like they have to have all of the answers all of the time, but that's not necessarily absolutely. the case, is it? We're all human, we're all fallible, and we do have limitations. And recognizing that's so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I made the first. Sorry, I actually made the same mistake myself in the first ten years of my business is I thought I needed to have all the answers. I needed to have all the skills. So I was trying to pick up, um, you know, um, like Linux skills and programming skills and all sorts of things. Whereas really, that wasn't my key strength. And um, and I kind of learned the hard way because I almost burnt out in like 10 years ago. Mm. And also learning to trust other people and say, listen, you know, they've got much better skill set than I have. You know, I need to trust them to do a really good job. Exactly. And you're armed now with um, a breadth of uh, knowledge and experience to take the business Indeed. forward. And what do you envision um, for the next uh, 12 months for yourself and uh, for the business, Mark, especially considering navigating the current situation, but also beyond the pandemic as well? I'd be really interested to hear what your ambitions are. Today. Sure. Um, Mark, I'll talk about that. Well, with these internet solutions, we're looking to expand that because I think more and more people, as you said, you know, you know um, virtual is a new norm. So I think a lot more people are going to be looking for websites. Uh, so we're looking to expand our offerings, probably to make it a bit more accessible, especially to um, uh, to people that are actually new to uh, developing websites or you know or the internet. Uh, Easy Internet uh, Services, which is a digital marketing company, um, we're, we're essentially working on more cost-effective um, digital marketing packages. Again, making it more accessible to people, just like, like startups, so therefore making it a lot more affordable. Mm. Uh, for access rating, uh, we're just working on making our app as good as, as good as it can be. We clean up our database, we're forming strategic alliances. Um, so yes, but so for the first twelve months for for for, um, for all companies, I think we're going to do. You know, I think we're going to do pretty okay. I think it would be really, really fantastic, actually, Mark, um, in the next few months sure. once we start to see the fog lifting to actually catch up on yeah. this and just um, have a little bit of a refresher on how the business is doing once we start to see how the market is changing. Um, absolutely. But, but I've got to say, we are just about out of time today, but it has been um, an okay. absolute pleasure um, speaking to you um, on today's programme. And I do th- I th- thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. It's been a thoroughly enjoyable experience. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it, uh, Mark, and it's been not only enjoyable, but also thoroughly insightful as well. And I think the listeners will have gained an awful amount from this. Okay, super. Good to hear that. Thank you. Thanks again for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Thank you.
That was Mark Esho of Easy Internet Solutions, Easy Internet Services and Access Rating. Um, Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough MP for 28 years. Um, Lord Blunkett was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of his constituency, Brightside and Hillsborough. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. 
commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. 
hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately 
whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had 
three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, This might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a, a credible opposition nor an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, uh, professional lawyer 
who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? 
I think Sir Keir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.